0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. We've been working our way through Revelation 7. Uh, Last week we were in chapter 6, and next next week we're going to be in chapter 8. That's just how it works around here. We just go from chapter to chapter uh, throughout the book of of Revelation. And we need to review here a little bit because it's so important that we understand the backbone of the book of Revelation. Revelation. I mentioned this. Uh, let's see. Uh, oops, uh, wrong place. Here we go. All right, <clears throat> the backbone of the book of, of Revelation are the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. These like are, are the backbone judgments of the book of, of Revelation. They're they're symbols of judgment that God pours out on the earth when when a seal is opened from the scroll then terrible things begin to happen upon the earth. And when the, the trumpets are blown, similar catastrophes take place. And when the bowls are poured out, it's, it's God's wrath upon his rebels who come upon the earth. And with each seal and trumpet and bowl, there comes increasing plagues upon the earth. And as I told you last week, the, the seals <clears throat> are in chapter 6. The trumpets are in Revelation 8 and 9. And the bowls are in Revelation 16. These would be worthy to memorize. To just say, okay, seals are in six, and then we got trumpets in eight and nine, and then we have uh, the bowls in Revelation 16. Um, and and with with each of these, right, come the judgment. Now there are seven of these seals, and seven of these trumpets, and there are seven of these bowls. And it's very symbolic, like this is apocalyptic literature. How there are just seven of them. It just kind of comes in this, uh, <clears throat> this wave of, of, of patterns like that. And, and there's various different ways in which people understand the seals, trumpets, and bowls. And I told you about this last week. There's some who understand them to be chronological, meaning that the seals happen first, and, and then the trumpets, and then the bowls. That's how it occurs in the book of Revelation, and there, there are people who, who see that chronological. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there are others who see it as, as concurrent. In other words, right? You have uh, just one, uh, one cycle of seals, and, and then the, the trumpets actually are <clears throat> The trumpets are covering the same time, or maybe a little bit time, but kind of looking at the same event of God's pouring out His judgment, maybe from a little different view, a little different vantage point, And as the bowls are poured out, just a, a little bit different view as well. There are people who see Revelation like that. Fine Bible-believing people view it like that. And uh, the question for us today is, is really this. Where does Revelation 7 fit in? Well, if you view um, the Bible chronologically, then Revelation 7 is going to fit right after Revelation 6. And right before, help me now, Revelation 8, right? That's where it's going to fit. Um but if you see Revelation as concurrently, then <clears throat> it just kind of fits in here. It might be somewhat maybe towards the beginning of time. It might be the be, be whole time, actually, uh, between the cross and the second coming. Maybe it's a different time. But somehow it's there. Just you look at the events of history in a different perspective. And Bible-believing people believe both of these things. They're like, well, which, which is right? There's good arguments on either side. And quite frankly, I'm not exactly sure how it is and and so longing not to speak something which is untruth to you just would encourage you to be gracious to both sides what i'm encouraging you and in some regards it doesn't matter because when it comes to revelation 7 the message is the same in either way the lesson is this that salvation belongs to the lord salvation belongs to the lord we're going to see that in our text. So let's read Revelation 7 through 17. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, With the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one Could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I trust you noticed the title of my message this morning comes from verse 10. It's the multitude is crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. Or salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we're going to see, this is the theme of the entire chapter. That salvation belongs to our God. God is the one who protects us. He's the one that preserves us. God is the one who cleanses his people. God is the one who provides for his people forever and ever. That's what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 7. Now, Revelation 7 follows naturally after the final question of chapter 6. Look back there when the the sixth seal was opened. We looked at this last week, but we can review it again. This is the sixth seal. This is the big seal. This is the seal where the the wrath of God is coming. And he opened the sixth seal. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of a lamb for his great day of the wrath has come and who can stand. You know, this sounds a lot like the end of the world. The stars falling from the sky, right? The, the sky vanishing, mountains, and islands, right, rolling away. So, why many think the sixth seal is describing the, the events towards the end of the world, because this is cataclysmic. I mean, after this, there seems very little room for things to happen. All is dark, and the earth is being reformed. Anyway, it's so bad that people want to die. In verse 16, they're, they're hiding in the caves and saying, Fall on us, right? Hide us from the, the wrath. We want to die rather than face the wrath of the Lord. Right? But look at the question here in verse 17. It says this. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Right? I mean, the, the question seems almost rhetorical, doesn't it? God's wrath has come. Who can stand? Well, well nobody can stand. That's why we're willing to die, because no one can stand. We might as well die. But, but that's not quite true, because Revelation 7 Tells us who can stand. In fact, that is my, my first point this morning is, is the, the question, right? Who can stand? And here's the answer: those who are sealed can stand. Verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Okay, so you gotta stop here and see. Many people just take naturally, this is chapter six, and then after ch- comes chapter seven, because this is what happens after this. But John doesn't say, after this, this is what happens. He said after this. He saw. In other words, John is saying that I saw these seals opened, <clears throat> and then there was a, a time or briefly or whatever, and then I saw this. And John is just saying that time-wise is for him seeing the revelation, it doesn't necessarily follow that the next thing happening is necessarily uh, after chapter 7. Now, it may be, it may not be, but I'm not going to speculate. I want, I want us to remember again and again, right? Revelation is a picture book and not a puzzle book. We're not going to figure out all these problems. I'm just saying, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to entrust those and just say, hey, this is what it is. I'm just saying that John sees his other vision. Now, we can slot it in chronologically or consecutively, concurrently, however we want. That's the point here is that that God is is the God of our salvation. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Some critics take this verse and see how ignorant the Bible authors were? (laughs) Four-corner. They think the earth is flat. See how ignorant they are? Yeah. But they miss apocalyptic genre. Apocalyptic genre speaks like this. I mean, to, to say that there are four corners necessitates a flat earth, that that's what John really believed, that this was the case, it is to miss what apocalyptic literature is all about. What this is about, talking about just probably the four uh, directions of the compass, north, south, east, or west. It's probably what it's talking about, right? Stopping the wind, whether it comes from the north, whether it comes from the south, east or the west. Somehow it's being stopped and it might not blow and destroy the earth and the, the sea and the trees. In fact, this is, comes in chapter 8 when we see the angels blowing the trumpets, and a third of the earth being burned up. And so there is some sense where it makes sense that this is consecutive. Because saying, okay, wait, wait, wait. Before this trumpet, before the destruction comes of chapter 8, we have to, we have to fix this out. And these, like, these are the kind of things I put these categories of consecutive and concurrent in your minds. Because sometimes it shows better that way. And sometimes it shows better another way. But here's just a, a clue that it might be that way. And these winds probably representing the, the coming judgment of God. The judgment's being restrained until God's people can be protected first. And I say this because the message that he hears in verses 2 and 3. He says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea. And we're going to see these four angels in chapter 8, that they're going to be given power on that. He stops them like he stops the winds. And he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Wait till you blow the trumpets until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, you may have heard of the Mark of the Beast. How many of you have heard of the Mark of the Beast? Okay, I won't. If you haven't heard of the Mark of the Beast, it means you don't know. You've not heard much about Revelation in pop culture or in the scriptures at all. It comes up in chapter 13. When the beast rises from the sea, and he marks people on the right hand and on their foreheads. And this mark of the beast, by the way, think about it, is a counterfeit to the true mark of God. Here in chapter 7, we see the true seal of God, the true mark of God. It's interesting here that this angel holds the seal. It's what he's got. He says says, the angel has the seal until they've sealed these People on their foreheads. And I'm not sure what that is, whether it's an ink blot, he's going to go like this and go bam, or, or what exactly is going to take place. But somehow, people, servants of God, be marked on their foreheads, is what this says. Now, it's always Satan's plan to mimic that. Satan will mark his people. In fact, even if you read Revelation chapter 13, I can't wait till we get there the beast has a mortal wound that is healed. Do you know anyone else who has a mortal wound that is healed? Jesus, the Lamb, died standing as though he were slain, chapter 5 and verse 6. It's always Satan's plan to mimic God's work. And in this instance, God marks his servants on their foreheads. This is what John saw. However, I do not think that this is what's going to happen. I do not think that believers are going to have a physical mark on their head. This is apocalyptic. This is what John sees, but you gotta take this into reality, whether there is a physical mark or not. You might believe there's a physical mark. God bless you, that's totally fine. I think somehow they're they're sealed and wrapped and protected. This again is apocalyptic literature. God's servants are are sealed and protected somehow. It may be a physical mark, but I, I sort of doubt it. But God has always marked out his servants. In other ways in the scripture, without physical marks on them. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Here it is. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed the last time. This is the idea of the seal. There's a guarded through faith for this salvation ready to be revealed. And what Peter's talking about, about our being guarded, there's no physical mark on that. But God is his people. He's just going to guard them and protect them until they obtain that inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the same idea, what's happening here in Revelation 7. God's protecting his people. He's guarding them so they can stand when the wrath of God comes. God has always kept his servants. The, the great benediction of Jude 24 and 25. That to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. There's God is able to keep you from stumbling so as to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. There it is. He's keeping us. He's protecting us without a mark. God doesn't want to do that. Jesus said in John 24, John 10, 27 through 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Why? Because no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his Father's hand. There's another another metaphor about how God protects his children is that, that they are in God's hand. And just like a three year old can't open the dad's hand where the candy is in that hand, try as a three year old might. Like, God, dad is stronger than the little child. And so, God is stronger than Satan. When he has believers in his hand, he's not going to let go. And I believe this sign here being marked, what John sees in apocalyptic literature of a physical mark, is just like these sorts of, of protective seals in which he guards us and he, he keeps us and he puts us in his hand. Salvations of the Lord. He's going to protect us until the end. And I think that's what these seals are, are talking about. That's keeping, protecting, preserving power of God. I thought about some illustrations of, of this. It might be like the fireman who can enter the burning house because he's got his fireproof suit that he wears. Or I was thinking about the, the mountain climber who can endure the harsh conditions on the top of Mount Everest because of the coat he wears and the oxygen that comes through his mask. He can make it there. Or I think about the astronaut who who survives outside the space station because he is capable of such survival. This is what God does when he he protects us, he seals us, he helps us to be able to go through the the harsh situation perhaps even of a world experiencing God's wrath. This is the protection that God gives to all his believers to be able to stand because they're sealed and protected and kept from his wrath. Now in verses 4 through 8 we see these servants identified. He says, "For I heard the number of those sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And here we have 12,000, exactly 12,000 from all the different tribes, Um, although some, like Dan, is excluded for some reason. I don't exactly know. I know some commentators have gone through lots to try to explain why why Dan is not there and maybe he was um, sinful and Ephraim is not there either, but then... You've got Joseph, and you've got Manasseh. And so, like, try to figure all of this out, uh, where all those are. Um, I think maybe trying to figure that out is maybe going astray a little bit. Because the idea here is these round numbers. 12,000 from every different tribe. Many have interpreted these verses differently. Outside the Christian faith, Jehovah's Witnesses claim that these are the number of people who are going to be in heaven. 144,000 reigning with Christ. The heavenly hope they have, but all the other peons, whatever, the beyond 144,000, enjoy not the heavenly hope, but the earthly hope. That's what Joe witnesses. Mormons take these 144,000 and be high priests. They're going to spread the gospel. In mainline Christianity, basically two views. The, these 144,000 are literally 144,000. 12,000 literal Jews from each of the tribes of Israel. Making up 144,000, you have Jewish people. Making that up. People believe that. Wonderful that people believe that. Now, others in the Christian faith believe these numbers are emblematic of a large number of Christians, Jew or Gentile. Just, again, in the apocalyptic literature, just understanding. John saw Jewish people being set apart. But the implication is, well, what does that mean? Is it just Jews or is it beyond that? Now, it's interesting. If you'd asked me before I began preaching through Revelation... Uh, I remember someone asked, who are the 144,000? I'm like, what are you th- they're Jews. 12,000, that's exactly what it says. It's interesting, though, as I have buried myself in apocalyptic literature, I'm not so sure anymore. Because I think there's liberty here, especially with the, the roundness of the numbers. Like, to, to, to know that perhaps it's legitimate to take them representative of a large number of people whom God has sealed and protected for his saving purposes. And I think it's okay to see that way. So whatever you see, I just encourage you to give great Christian grace on this matter. I don't know which is true, therefore that's why I'm not saying one or the other. And, and mostly to decide whether you believe it's literal or whether you believe it's, it's emblematic of all believers comes how you see revelation. If you see revelation as sequential like this, well then probably you will see the events of Revelation 7 happening and you will most likely interpret 144 as ethnic Israel, probably. And if you see the events of Revelation as overlapping, retelling the story of God from different perspectives, then most likely you'll probably interpret these 144,000 as Christians sealed for their protection. And I don't know which interpretation is the best. I know faithful believers have different views their pros and cons, really, each way. 144,000 Jews, it's the simple and straight way to read the text. But remember, right? It's apocalyptic literature. Also, remember this it's written to Christians in the first century, the majority of whom were not Jewish people, all of whom were facing strong days of, of difficult persecution. And I just ask you if Revelation is going to come a blessing to these first century readers, would it be a blessing to them? to be encouraged, to hold fast their faith, if they knew some 2,000 years later that these 444,000 Jews are going to be sealed and protected. Oh, that's really strengthening me. am like, I'm not sure. And those are the, the doubts sort of things that, that I have. Or, and here's what I think, is the encouragement in the picture. That, that God is his people and he's going to protect them and he's going to seal them. And even when God's wrath comes upon the, the, the sinful creation... God is his servants who he's going to protect and keep even through the awfulness of what's going to face. And so I just say this, right? In, in, in all your arguing and trying to puzzle us all out, don't miss the point. The point is that God preserves his people, whether this is just talking about 144,000 Jewish people or whether it's talking about Christians and believers who've trusted. It's the main point. Salvation belongs to our God. Who can stand? Those who God has sealed and protected and kept for his redemption. Those are the ones who can stand. That's the point of Revelation 7. Paul said it this way in, Re- in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's God who destines us and protects us to obtain salvation through Jesus. When Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers, he spoke about how they were sealed and protected For their future salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, in Christ Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, right, with every true believer in Jesus Christ, when we hear the gospel... And we believe and trust and hope in Jesus, right? In him we have redemption through his blood. He Ephesians 1 speaks about. We believe that gospel. God seals us. Everyone here today who's a believer has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is a fact true. So whether that corresponds with, with 144,000, we don't know. It could, it might not. But the fact for us in application is that the principle, whatever happens in the future, whatever happens there, happens to us. As we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and He guarantees our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God's protecting us, keeping us in His hand. And perhaps Revelation, spoken in the apocalyptic style, is merely rehearsing this truth for all believers. We're sealed and protected until the day of redemption. And nothing, neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's the idea of the text. Salvation belongs to our God, to our Lord, and He's got us. So whether Revelation is speaking about us or speaking about some Jews in the future, whether it's speaking about these ethnic Jews, listen, the point is the same. Who can stand in the days of God's wrath? Those who have been sealed and protected. We have no need to fear the future, the coming tribulation. God will protect his servants. And I think that's where the original hearers would have found encouragement that, that okay, right, things are pretty bad and things are hard, right? But, But God has his own and he's got them. He's going to protect them. He's going to keep them because salvation is of the Lord. All right, there's the first picture of Revelation 7. Let's move on to the second picture. This picture is of a great multitude in verses 9 through 7. And my question here is, who will stand? Not who can stand. The the ones that can stand are the ones who are protected. Who who will stand? Well, here's the great multitude. Look look at verse 9. After this, I looked. And behold, again, I just remind you that John saw this vision, right? And then after that, he looked and he saw another vision. These might be two things. They might be the same thing at a different angle. Just John saw this again. It might take place one after the other. It might. Take us to a different sense altogether, right? 140,000 a lot of people. When that compares to the great multitude, I'm, originally before coming into Revelation, I'm like, no, those are two different things. But understanding apocalyptic, like, you know what, those might be the same thing. I don't know. It's a, it's a picture. That's what we're trying to see here. I don't know. But I know the main point is that in the end, salvation belongs to the Lord and he's going to have a great multitude of people who are worshiping him and serving him verse 9 after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb what a great scene just think about this scene we have a a huge crowd This crowd is so great that no one can number it. You can fill a stadium, and we know how many seats are in the stadium. You can guess pretty much how many people are there. When a large political event takes place, and people come and descend upon the national wall in Washington, D.C., the crowd is huge, even up to a million people. But there's still estimates, and the sense here is even it's larger than that. Like, this is so big, we're talking about millions and millions of people, maybe tens of millions, hundreds of millions, like, like just so numeral. People everywhere. Huge crowd, a diverse crowd from every nation, all tribes, every language, every people group. Not just Jews, not just Romans, but all tribes. It's a heavenly crowd. They're all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It takes us back to Revelation 4 and 5, right? We've been there in Revelation 4. We saw the throne. We saw God on the throne. We saw the, the Lamb in heaven being worshipped. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13 to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And that's what we see here. We see great multitudes gathering from all these different ethnic groups. Here, the heavenly crowd worshiping the Lord who sits on the throne and the Lamb. The worshiping crowd, they have palm branches in their hands. It brings us back to the days of Jesus when he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, the donkey of a king. This is another triumphal entry, if you will. Not into Jerusalem, but into heaven itself. I don't know how many gathered that day when Jesus rode on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. Maybe a hundred. Maybe a couple hundred. But nothing compared to the, the heavenly congregation that assembles now with palm branches in their hand, acknowledging the kingship of Jesus. And they are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So The title of my message, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Whether it's sealing the 144,000 or whether it's the worship of the great multitude, God has done it. He has brought about our salvation. It belongs to the Lord. He's the one that protects. And he's the one that gives. And he's the one that gathers. That's what Revelation is about. And what an encouragement to these people of the first century. As they, they're, they're hiding in the catacombs, right? Worshiping in the tombs so the Romans won't bother them. And just in these small numbers, but to realize the kingdom of God is much bigger and much grander. Could you imagine what they would have thought when they pictured that many people before the throne? It would have been encouragement to them, right? The gospel will triumph. It will go on. There will be millions and millions of people who will believe this gospel and trust it someday. God be praised for his salvation. It's interesting, it's not just people who praise for the salvation, also the the angelic heavenly host praise the Lord. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Just like we sang today. In fact, I kind of inserted a Few different words that we sang today. Be to our God, forever and ever. it's the worship of the Lord brings up all the the categories of those worshiping God from Revelation four and five. We see the angels, we see the elders, we see the the four living creatures, all on their faces, before the throne of God, worshiping Him. Don't miss that little phrase there at the beginning of verse eleven. And all the angels, when John describes the angels. Back in chapter 5, he described them as myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Chapter 5 and verse 11. So not only do you have like untold number of people around the throne worshiping, you've also got these myriads and myriads of angels. The idea here is of a huge worship service that seems to go on, as it says, forever and ever as they're worshiping in this way. seems almost as if the angelic crowd, the size of that, matches the size of the human crowd. All mixed and mingled together some, somehow. Maybe two sections. Maybe on the right hand, you guys are, are people and you guys are angels. I don't know how it all fit up. Have you ever been in such assembly of people worshiping? Big assembly. Lots of people. It's really powerful. One of the things I miss at Rock Valley Bible mm-hmm. Church is that we're a small church. We don't quite have the taste of this heavenly worship. Although we were close when we sang that that uh, crowning with many crowns a cappella, don't you think? There was something majestic about that. We're here even the smallest we are. But here, I don't care how big a church there is. Rockford, whether it's 100 or 400 or 5,000 or 3,500, like it's all small and teeny compared to what's going to be taking place here. No church, no concert venue will ever duplicate the sheer size and the multitude probably the volume energy of worshiping the Lord I got to bring up this little note here Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 we have the four living creatures never cease to say holy 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 is the Lord God almighty how is it then that these four living creatures saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and might and honor and blessing be them how is it they're saying that Darren how are they saying that (laughs) you don't know Right? That's apocalyptic literature. Like you're not supposed to take these and try and scientifically try to figure it out. No, it's just holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's one picture. And then you see the picture here where it's blessing and honor, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and might be to our God. Like it's okay that they're saying it's okay if those mix because apocalyptic literature like messes things and it, it puts them together in a in a strange way. It just wants to get an impression upon us of the power of of the worship in heaven someday. It's only a contradiction if you take Revelation literally at every point. It's not. It's not this puzzle book to be figured out exactly. It's this picture book to make an impression upon us. It's, and here in Revelation 7. It's to draw attention to the greatness of our God. Who's given us this salvation. And is worthy to be worshipped by this untold number of people. And the whole heavenly host. God is such worthy of our worship of that. And then. We see in 13 this conversation that John has with one of the 24 elders. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come from? Those are the questions we have, right? right? Who are these people and where did they come from? John didn't know. That's why I said in verse 14, sir, you know. Like John didn't bring it up. I think this angel brought it, this elder brought it up because he knew and he wanted to tell John, and so he told it in the form of a question, like Jesus often did. And he said to me, Here they are, he's identifying. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of a lamb. The elder answered the questions in reverse order. He answered the where question first, and then he answered the who question next. Where have they come from? At this point again, right? It's one of those debates depending upon how you see the seals, trumpets, and bulls, is depending upon how you see the great tribulation. Again, right, if you see Revelation as laying out a, a sequential events in the future, then you're going to see the great tribulation, which is confined to this time right there in Revelation chapter 7. Which is okay, I know many people who believe that, right? It's, it's common, lots of people do. And, and then some people see these, these people gathering here are, are maybe the rapture, Right? These are raptured folks from the earth who have been snatched and taken out and brought into heaven. Some people think that. Others view them as martyrs, which I kind of have a hard time believing millions and millions and untold number of people being martyred. It doesn't mention anything about being martyred. But such might be the intense time of persecution that comes upon the world, people say. But if you view these seals as concurrently, All describing the same course of events in this great tribulation, right, happens at at some point in here. Maybe it's the the whole, I've heard people say the great tribulation, the whole church period, right, that we are under tribulation. Jesus says, you'll have, in the world, you will have tribulation. Going through that, so viewing that, that these would be all the saints who've died, all the saints throughout all time, right before the Lord. And and that might make sense as well. And I'm not going to speculate on those times. I just put those broad, interpretive Options there for you. But what I want to do is focus on the emphasis of the text, which brings us back to the reality of the heavenly worship that John saw. This huge, diverse, heavenly multitude waving their palm branches in their hands, crying out loud voices, salvation to our God. Then the elder answers the who question. The who question is far more important than the where they come from question. It's far more important than the timing. It says the who. Verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Apocalyptic imagery. Coming here again, right? You dip a garment in blood. Do you get a white garment? You don't. You get a stain so deep you can't wash it out. out. In fact, even if you bleed a little bit and bleed onto your shirt, that's a stain that, that you just can't get out. Blood stains deeply. Yet here this multitude have taken their robes And they've washed them in the blood of Jesus. Again, right? there's no way that the blood that came down from the cross into whatever bowl or basin you try to... Can wash a multitude of garments. It's a picture. It's what Revelation is talking about. The blood of Jesus is so powerful. It can wash and wipe away millions and millions and millions of people's sin. To make them white and to stand pure before the Lord. That's the emphasis. That's what's being talked about here. right? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's the idea here. The only way that people can be cleansed of their sin is through the blood of Jesus. And here in Revelation, in the apocalyptic picture, they're they're picturing garments soaked and washed in the blood of Jesus and coming out sparkly clean because that's what the blood of Jesus does. It forgives. It cleanses. it, It makes us righteous and well. Obviously, the question here is, is your garment white? Has your garment been washed in the blood of Christ? I'm not talking about your clothes, I'm talking about your soul. Has your soul been washed in the blood of Christ? And again, that's not physical, but it's it's hoping. It's hoping and trusting in the crucified, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that cleanses our soul. Has he cleansed your soul? I mean, we can talk all about those being sealed, and you can speculate, oh, it's wonderful, 144,000 there, right? And not touch your heart. I'm just saying, if God has cleansed you, you're protected. If God has cleansed you, you may well be one of these in the great multitude. Like, focus in and see, oh, yeah, there they are. They're the people of Rock Valley Bible Church. There they are. But if your garment is not washed... You have reason to fear the lamb as those did at the end of Revelation 6. To say, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of a lamb. Hide me, right? I, I'm not cleansed. i am not been sealed, so hide me. Your only hope of seal and protection is through the blood of Jesus. But if the garments are washed clean in the blood of Jesus, right? You can join this multitude. You can worship God who saved you from your sin. And say salvation belongs to our God. And then we got one last section. Verses 15 through 17 further describing the, the, the scene that he sees. Because they've been washed, therefore, this is what follows as a result of being washed in the blood of Christ. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorched heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Does this sound like another chapter in Revelation? God wiping away every tear from their eyes? hunger and pain and sorrow be banished, the water of life? This sounds a lot like Revelation 21 and 22. Right? Just let me read. Right? Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's, that's close to the sense that we have here. Wiping away every tear from their eyes. No more hunger, verse 16. No more thirst, right? No more sun scorching them in hot heat, which, by the way, it kind of is an allusion to the bold judgments. It's coming with scorching heat. So it's kind of like, this, this is why people think it's concurrently, because this almost seems to be like happening even after the bold judgments, like in, in the final time, the scope of things. Revelation 22, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Just exactly like here, they're sealed. This is what happens at the end of time, is the servants of God worshiping him, and there's no greater worship here like this. And so I just say that that might be... right. An argument for how this runs concurrently. And so these are the the people who have come out. And we're getting a taste here, Revelation 7, of the end. And so Revelation 7 is is really scoping to the end. And then people point out, well, they're in the temple. As it says there in verse 15, they serve day and night in the temple. In the new creation, there is no temple. For God himself is their temple. Oh, well, maybe it's chronological. Like, I, I don't know. I'm just saying all this is a picture of the glories of heaven. It's what we might experience. Everybody who's trusted in Jesus can experience this. Sealed for eternity, worshiping the Lord where pain and sorrows are gone. Let me just close with this. Following after Jesus is worth it. The original readers of this book... We're going through a difficult time, facing some tribulation along with John. But such a vision of heavenly worship gives us a vision that it's worth it. That that we will stand before there. So who will stand? Believers in Jesus who've trusted him, who've served him. They will stand before God and worship him forever and ever. So my exhortation to you is follow the Lord, even through tribulation, even through hardship, even through difficult times like the first readers heard, because it's worth it, standing and worshiping before the Lord. Who will stand? Those who believe in the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I admit much mystery here, and I haven't figured it out, and I'm not sure anyone has, people think they figured it out, God, but in humility I say uh, I'm not smart enough to figure it all out. But I have figured out, though, Lord, that as I trust in you and direct people to trust in you that, that our garments can be white and we can worship you with this great heavenly throng. Even as we, we sang of today, crowned with many crowns and with the, the throng that comes and, and worships you. Father, I pray for every single one of us that we would be that place, that we would know of your protecting Power that we through faith are protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? That that we can't escape your hands? God, you, your grip is a death grip on us and Satan cannot take us out of your hand. God, that you're the one that keeps us until that final day. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. May we rest and trust in that and realize that the, the promises that you give... Are, a far greater value, God, than are the, the passing pleasures of sin. Help us to see, even in this interlude, between the judgments of the seals and the trumpets. God, it's worth it to follow after you. Salvation is from you. You guard us. You protect us. You will have a people worshiping you in eternity, a large people worshiping you in eternity. And in that, oh God, we do rejoice. Would pray for us that this would be on our vision, on our mind, on our thoughts. To think of the heavenly worship that you extend. how that you will be worshipped. Salvation is from the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.